Thank you for listening to TMA's Practice Well podcast. TMA, helping you improve the health of all Texans. TMA has a long, proud history of promoting patient rights, advocating for physicians, and providing real solutions for your practice. We can accomplish so much when we unite in one voice. Call the TMA Knowledge Center at 1-800-880-7955 or visit TexMed.org to find out how you can join or renew your membership today. Did you know that you can claim CME credit for many of the TMA Practice Well podcasts? Just go to www.texmed.org forward slash CME to go. That's www.texmed.org forward slash C-M-E-T-O-G-O to register for your podcast and follow the instructions to claim CME. Policies and Standards of the Texas Medical Association, the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education, and the American Medical Association require that speakers and planners for continuing medical education activities disclose any relevant financial relationship they may have with commercial entities whose products, devices, or services may be discussed in the content of the CME activity. The planners and speakers of this program have nothing to disclose. Please be advised that the information and opinions presented as part of this podcast should not be used or referred to as a primary legal source and does not replace the advice of your health care attorney. Hi, I'm Cheryl Kroviak. I manage the Texas Medical Association Education Center, where through webinars, publications, and See Me To Go, TMA provides information to help physicians survive and thrive. I'm happy to introduce the first in an Ask the Expert series that will bring you access to professional experts who can answer questions on legal practice management, advocacy, and regulatory topics. Each month, a TMA staff expert will host an episode to discuss their area of expertise and answer questions TMA receives from members. This episode is about the 21st Century Cures Act and is hosted by Shannon Vogel, TMA's Associate Vice President for Health Information Technology, and guest speaker Jeffrey Drummond, JD, a partner with Jackson Walker Dallas. Welcome, everyone. It's, it's a real pleasure to be with you. I've been with TMA for 21 years in the past 14 over our HIT department. And uh, this, this topic lands squarely in that area. And uh, Jeff, if you don't mind, if you'd like to introduce yourself and say a few words. 
Uh, sure. I'm Jeff Drummond. I'm with Jackson Walker in Dallas. I've been practicing health law for about 35 years and uh, been dealing uh, very heavily with HIPAA for the last 21 years now. Um, and uh, I've uh, uh, assisted TMA uh, in, a couple, in a bunch of HIPAA presentations, a bunch of HIPAA, including the HIPAA policies and procedures that if you use TMA's forms, those uh, HIPAA policies and procedures, as well as the forms of uh, HIPAA authorizations, notice privacy practices, those types of uh, forms, uh, assisted TMA in development of those forms. Thank you. So we want to hear from you mostly, but I want to give you some high-level information about 21st Century Cures. So 21st Century Cures Act, um, a bipartisan law passed in 2015, uh, really designed to promote innovation and to help deliver better information to patients, physicians, and other providers, um, hospitals, et cetera and promotes interoperability and mostly prohibits information blocking. And that's what we want to talk more about. Um, The final regs were published last May and the first compliance date is coming due uh, next month, April 5th. It is required of those with electronic health information. So if you use paper records, you are exempt from the information blocking regulations, but that does not exempt you from other data access laws such as HIPAA. So make sure that you're still providing, you know, information to patients upon request and other laws that you've had to comply with. Jeff, as I go, I know I'm talking at a pretty good clip, but just stop me or throw up your hands if you have something to add. Um, Information blocking can happen several ways. So when trying to access patient records from other physicians, if you're not getting those, when you're connecting EHRs to a health information exchange, if you're charged excessive fees, that is considered information blocking. Another way that I see this helping physicians, we've heard time and time over the years how expensive it is to migrate data from one EHR to another. The information blocking um, prohibitions should help with that. And certainly withholding records from patients would be information blocking. Yeah, Shannon, let me I just point out uh, the information blocking rules when, when they first came out, it, we really were looking at them in regards to, to, to the way EHRs were trying to prevent other EHRs from being able to use their data. It was really defensive by EHRs and there wasn't interoperability because the EHRs really had competitive or commercial reasons for trying to block access. And so that was the, the initial thrust of the data blocking rules was to stop those EHRs and EMR developers from setting up those systems that way. However, it also became addressed in part of the regulatory process, the issue of where in certain places where for competitive reasons or other reasons, providers are not providing the level of access to individual patients with regard to their data. And so that's really more than what I help you uh, understand is what your obligations are specifically. And so the withholding records from patients is probably the biggest area where uh, the rubber will hit the road when we're talking about physician practices. Yeah, I agree with you, Jeff. And we heard some very egregious um, stories about vendor behavior. So I agree with you 100%. So when you hear about different things around the regulations, um, ONC, the Office of the National Coordinator who put these regs out, they refer to actors who must comply with regulations. So the actors in this law are physicians, health IT developers, such as your EHR vendors, health information exchange networks and exchanges. Patients do have a right to their health information um, that's maintained by covered entities. And you as a physician, you are a covered entity. And it includes lists of of items. 
And notice clinical notes. That's one that is really getting a lot of attention. Now, what the EHR vendors are required to do is have what's in the USCDI version one data classes and data elements be able to be extracted from your record to provide this to patient. So Google USCDI version one to see this list. But these are the types of data elements that will be expected to be released to patients. Um, ONC is already working on comments on version two of this list that will have um, a few changes, but, but this primarily captures what is required to be exchanged. When a, a patient makes a request, a physician must fulfill it for the e-health information, electronic health information, as requested by patients, which may include providing the information via the patient portal, or one thing that will be new is hearing from patients via an application program interface, also referred to as an API or health app, such as Apple Health. It might be that on the patient's behalf, you'll get a request from Apple Health to provide Shannon Vogel's data to her, and you would have to comply with that. You don't have to figure out how to do it. Your EHR vendor should have that capability in place. And that's exactly right. One of the things that's included in the uh, in the uh, in the data blocking rules is that as a requirement that all EHRs have a uh, an API associated or integrated into them. Now, and and really every user is required to, which means you as a practice who's using an EMR needs to have an API that's available. But as uh, Shannon said, that's not you don't have to develop it. Your EMR provider will develop it. Uh, and the idea is that all different APIs will work with all other APIs and they'll all interoperate together. And it's there's some really sort of cool technology, it's called smart technology that makes all of that happen, which is way over my head uh, in terms of explaining how it works. But the idea is that all of these electronic data systems will all communicate with each other. And so it won't be siloed into one type of data that you can't then get out and use in someplace else. You'll also hear um, the words in the content and manner requested. So physicians must respond to a request or to access exchange or use health information. And the content is what's in that USCDI and in the manner requested, unless technically unable to fill the request, then in an agreed upon format. So if a physician reaches out and says, hey, you know, I'm, I want to refer this patient to you. I want to electronically send you the information. What do you have set up? Can we go through an HIE? Can I send it to you via direct? If you don't have those, then you'll talk about what manner works, and then you agree to that. Yeah, and these are the ones where really come into play when the where the uh, issues will hit uh, physician practices, uh, and it's the the because there are certain activities that are necessarily going to be by definition blocking of data access. Uh, in fact. When you think about HIPAA and you think about medical record privacy, the concept is to block access. We don't give information out unless there's a good reason. It's got to be treatment, payment, healthcare operations. Patients has to request it, something like that. We really do approach data as providers from a restrictive viewpoint, and that's smart, and that's the way we should do it. But here, the idea is you have to be as open as possible with the data. So there are some reasons why it's okay not to be open with the data. And so there are, these are the exceptions to data blocking. The first five here really relate to instances where you say, I'm not going to provide it, or I can't provide it. 
uh, uh, preventing harm. I won't provide the information because it may cause some sort of harm. And there are some specific requirements in here, which are a little more granular than we have time to get into. But the idea behind the, on the uh, uh, on the preventing harm exception is that we're trying to uh, if I disclose the data, something bad would happen. And so that's a good reason. Privacy is another good reason why you might not be disclosing data or allowing data to flow. And that the funny thing about the privacy restriction is that if you are prohibited under HIPAA or other or another uh, uh, applicable law from providing the data, then that meets the privacy uh, exception for information blocking. In other words, it's not considered information blocking when you say, I'm not going to give this out because it would violate, or I'm, I'm prohibited by law from doing so, and that therefore I need to provide privacy with regard to the data. However, keep in mind, there's a lot of disclosures under HIPAA that are permitted, but are optional, and that currently providers don't do. Those no longer meet the uh, the anti the anti blocking rules under the anti blocking rules that would be considered data blocking. It's only those uh, issues where you're prohibited. Uh, security if the if the disclosure would would uh, violate data security rules uh, if it's infeasible to make the disclosure or if just doing the dis or if you are shutting down your EHR system for a period of time. So an example you have uh, maintenance going on on your EMR uh, overnight. And a patient says, well, I tried to get in. I wasn't able to get my data. You data blocked me. That's, that's a permitted exception for data blocking restrictions. Uh, and then the others, if you provide the data in a different content or manner than the patient's looking for or the requester is looking for the data, uh, if that's the only way that you can do it, that's a permittable uh, uh, exception. Uh, if you have to charge a fee for people to access their data, as long as it's a reasonable fee, it's appropriate, and it's limited to your costs of developing the, the system that allows it to be, or the use of the system. Uh, and then if uh, you require, if somebody wants to come in and have access to your EMR and basically run your EMR on their own system, well, they may, you may say, well, you need to have a license for that. And so that's another potential exception. So you have to have one of those or any prohibition or refusal to disclose data becomes a data blocking problem. Just a, a couple of more um, exceptions. So if the, um, if the data is being compiled in a reasonable anticipation of or used in a criminal or administration action or proceeding, and then psychotherapy notes recorded in any medium by a healthcare provider who is a mental health professional documenting or analyzing the contents of conversation during a private counseling session or a group joint or family counseling session that are separate from the rest of the individual's uh, medical record. And then penalties, yet we do not have penalties yet. The Office of the Inspector General, General or OIG, they proposed a rule on civil monetary penalties penalties that would apply to other actors, but not physicians. Um, so if OIG determines that a healthcare provider, such as a physician, has committed information blocking, then the healthcare provider shall be referred to the appropriate agency for appropriate disincentives, which will be established in rulemaking. So we don't yet see any um, penalties for physicians around this. Shannon, I have one other thing to add with regard to on the fact that there aren't penalties set yet. Also, the data blocking, the anti-data blocking uh, rule will, in practical terms, be enforced by people making complaints about having data blocked. 
it's not, it doesn't appear that something, and ONC doesn't just doesn't have the personnel to go out and police this. Rather, it's going to be issues of someone making a complaint that they weren't able to access data or somebody making a complaint that their EMR wasn't operational appropriately. And so it's going to be more complaint driven than regulators coming out and looking for people who are violating the law. Good. Thank you. Thank you for that, Jeff. One question that the Cures Act only applies to the patient's electronic access to their health information. If there is a request for hard copies, that does not fall under the act. Um, But you would still want to comply with requests for hard copies. But Jeff, I want you to maybe elaborate on that as far as, you know, do all of the USCDI elements need to be part of that, which I think they would be anyway? Well, there are two different, two different uh, uh, ways to look at it. You're right that paper records don't, aren't subject to the data blocking rules because it's only about electronic data. So your paper records aren't, aren't, just aren't subject to it. However, you still have an obligation under HIPAA to provide access to a patient. If a patient's requesting it, provide access to all of their uh, PHI that you maintain in a designated record set. So if you have a paper record that is part of the medical record, which is designated record set, or in most instances, not always, but almost all instances, uh, the the records that relate to billing, uh, that's also generally going to be a designated record set. Then in that instance, if the patient requests their, their data, you're obligated to provide access to all of that data. So even though the data blocking rules don't apply, you have a HIPAA issue if you, if you refuse to provide it. And so I think that's sort of, you, you, you're saved from the, anti, the anti-data blocking rules, but there's this old HIPAA obligation that people have kind of forgot about that's still sort of lurking out there with regard to any PHI, not just ePHI. Right. Um, another question is, if we have a patient portal, the patient is registered, and we can share the patient's EHI with him or her, or the patient has immediate access to their health information there, are we automatically in compliance? I would say that's one aspect of compliance. You also need to, you know, one, make sure that it includes what's part of the USCDI, which again, your vendor should help you with. Um, But also you need to think about other requests from, you know, other physicians, um, referrals, et cetera, where you're sharing information beyond just with the patient. And additionally, if the patient, uh, you know, approaches, you know, it comes through the portal or comes to the portal and says, or comes to the practice and says, yeah, I can get it from the portal, but I've got Apple Health or I've got some other health app that I want to be able to have access it, then they need to have some way to have uh, that, the app that they're bringing to the table, the sort of bring your own app thing, it has to be some way for that to be able to directly interface with either the portal or your EMR system. And again, your EMR provider should be developing these things for you. You shouldn't be developing your own APIs, but that's additionally a required element. Secondly, if the patient comes sort of as a, as a similar uh, or you know, slight variation on that, a patient comes and requests the data in some other format via, not via the, uh, the portal, but they say, I want to get it through, I want to get a download of it. I don't want to come, go through the portal. I want it to be downloaded someplace, or I want to be able to send an app in and be able to access it. Even though they, you have the portal, you can't say, you know, we have the portal. That's all we need to do. That gives you enough access. There has to be more um, you know, evangelical. It has to allow all kinds of access, all kinds of APIs to access it. Good point. Um, and I think that's where it's a good opportunity for you to think through your policies and procedures as a practice 
so that when those requests come, you're not thinking about it for the first time. You've already figured it out, thought through it. I realize it, it will require tweaking as um, things go along and you figure out your best practices, but you do need to think about having that plan in place. Uh, next question, how does it work for health information exchanges since they are collecting information from different entities? I don't know that patients would request through a health information exchange. I know that a physician might query an HIE, but those responses are usually immediate. Um, may, maybe you could elaborate on exactly how it works for them as far as um, immediate access or how the information is provided. HIEs are subject to the data blocking rules too. So yes. they're basically pulled in. They're not just sort of a third-party referee where everybody has to comply by these rules and, and playing on their playing field. They have to abide by those the data blocking rules as well. So the HIEs are going to have to have these uh, API available systems. They're going to have to have APIs and have the availability for their API to communicate with other APIs. Um, and so they're going to have to do be doing the same thing that, that everyone else is. And it's not just a patient request for data, it's really kind of anybody request for data. The data blocking rules don't specify that this is what you have to do if a patient at requests or if a certain type of party requests. They're really drafted in a way, but they're, they're much more broad than that. Uh, and you kind of end up having to rely on the privacy exception for, uh, for data blocking if some random third party comes into an HIE and says, hey, I want to download up all the data you have. I'm just some guy on the street. Theoretically, that you have to say, well, there's an exception to that. It, it will be interesting to see what role HIEs start to play as far as patient-facing information, because typically patients aren't familiar with HIEs and know to go to them. But I personally think it would be a, a great way if you know physicians are connected because then that relieves the burden on the physician practice if the patient goes to the HIE. Right. Um, next question was, how does this differ from current HIPAA regulations regarding EHR for physicians? Yeah, I can, kind of, I can kind of jump in on that. Yeah. I sort of need a little bit of an explanation that you're still subject to all of HIPAA, certainly with regard to data access. This is primarily going to impact you on a data access question. And so that's primarily where you're going to, to run into it. So it's a Venn diagram with a lot of overlap, but some areas that are outside each. Uh, with regard to uh, HIPAA, you are going to have to deal with paper records under HIPAA, and you won't deal with those under the data blocking rules. Under the data blocking rules, you're going to have a tougher line on when you can say no with regard to patient access, particularly those uh, areas where HIPAA permits you to refuse to act to give access, but permits you to, to also give access. In those cases, under the data blocking rules, you'll have to give access. There's a lot of overlap, but there is uh, some, some amount of distinction there. I love this next question because I think this gets at the heart of what a lot of physicians are thinking. If we have a patient portal that disables certain features such as labs and clinical notes and just provide that information through a paper process, would that be considered information blocking? Whew. You know, that, that one is interesting because you may want to provide and then as a patient requests it, but you have to think about the manner in which the patient requests it. If they want that through their portal, I would say, yes, you need to upload it to the portal or through the API, or if they want it in paper. Um, Jeff, want to elaborate some more? I think that that's right. And because it is a, the question is, um, 
are you, it, it's driven by the patient request for the data or driven by somebody coming and asking for the data. You're not required to push out all the data, just sort of generally speaking. Rather, you have to see when somebody comes in and, and asks for it. Uh, under HIPAA, again, you're required to provide everything that's in a designated record set if the patient asks for it. That doesn't mean you have to provide everything on the, on the, the portal, but if a patient says, comes to the portal and says, oh, and by the way, they contact you outside the portal or through the portal and say, hey, I've got the information on the portal, but I also want my labs or I also want clinical notes or I also want what else, what else you've got, then you have to, you have to provide that information both under HIPAA and under the, the data blocking rules. So you, again, you can't just rely on the portal to essentially limit stuff that's on the portal to less than uh, the USCDI then that's, you, you can do that, but you have to make the rest of that information available upon request if anybody wants it in electronic format. And you need to make sure that you don't have anything in your documentation where you offer patients the ability to access a portal that says you can get everything through the portal if that's not the case. So if you do restrict the portal somehow, you need to make sure that you don't, aren't somehow implying otherwise that if you go to the portal and get it, you don't need to ask us for anything else because there's no other data. One other thing I'll point out is that um, it's not a, if you don't have, if you don't maintain all the information that's in the USCDI, uh, that's, not, that doesn't, that's not a bad thing. You're not somehow required now to go and take in more information when you go and see patients. You don't have to now go. For example, one of the components in USCDI is a, a, a pediatric vital signs. And if you're, you don't have a pediatric practice, that's a, your EMR has to have place for that, but you don't have, that doesn't mean you have to go and populate that data. So that's one thing. That was one question that, uh, that somebody has approached me with previously was some real concerns about the fact that a, for, and it was specifically, it was a optometric practice that they were wondering if they had to, you know, start doing, you know, measuring, you know, baby's heads or something. And I was like, yeah, no, that's the fact that it's in the data set doesn't mean you have to fill the data set. It just means that your system has to be a, a, a able to take that data. And if you have it and somebody asks for it, you have to be ready to share it. Very good point. Our next question, if the psychotherapy notes exclusion applies, how does that impact a medical provider documenting that in the EHR? Psychotherapy notes is a hard thing to meet the definition of. It's one thing that you need to be really careful of with the psychotherapy notes exception is that it's a very limited amount of information that's in the psychotherapy note. And if the, the information, if it's in, included in the regular record set, then it's not a psychotherapy note by definition. It has to be a separate set of records to be a psychotherapy note. It also, if it includes things like um, uh, session start and stop times, uh, prescription information for psychotropic drugs, et cetera, then that takes it out of the definition of psychotherapy notes. People get confused and they think that any sort of mental health record is a psychotherapy note and it's, just, it's not. So it's a very limited uh, amount of information or amount of records that count as a psychotherapy note. So you have to be really kind of careful with it. And because for purposes of the anti-data blocking rule, the, the, it comes up because that's not considered data that you can that you're prohibited from blocking, and so it's a it, it kind of carves it out from the concern. But 
it's really, you have to be concerned, you have to be careful that you're not including data that doesn't meet the strict definition as something that you don't have to disclose. So you just, you gotta be real careful with psychotherapy notes. Good point. Here's another good question. Our EHR currently has the functionality to allow the physician to document internal notes and then have a patient-friendly language in the plan. And so if they do not include their internal notes, is that considered information blocking? It, 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 it could be, and it probably is. If the patient asks for all of their information, if the patient just says, show me what's in the portal, then that's okay. But if they ask for information, if they ask for it, and again, remember it's request driven. So if the patient asks for all of their information and you don't provide that, then that could be considered data blocking. You would have to meet one of the other exceptions. But to clarify, is this the case if that's not part of the USCDI clinical notes? Okay, if it's not part of the USCDI, then that doesn't, it's not, it's not current. So I'm sorry, I thought it was, I thought, I, I thought it was more generic than that. Yeah, I think if a physician has maybe internal notes about the patient that are, um, you know, and I think that it's fair that a physician would want to have a place in somewhere to document things that maybe are not appropriate to share with the patient there. It's more their internal information mm-hmm. and not part of the USCDI. Yeah, and I think that that would be, if it's not part of the USCDI, then it's not subject to the data blocking rules. However, you also have to be careful because if it is included in the designated record set, then it is subject to the HIPAA or the HIPAA right to access. Now, mm. it's going to be less visible. A, a violation of the HIPAA right to access is going to be, that, that's, that's, uh, that's just a component of the data, is going to be less visible than a, uh, than a violation of the uh, anti-data blocking rules under the CARES Act. So it's something that you, or Cures Act rather. Uh, so it's just something you got to be, got to be, you know, uh, cognizant of. But and if it's out of the data, if it's out of the, 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 if you don't keep it in the regular medical record, then it's, it's, it, it may not be a designated record set. So because it's not something that you use, that's not what you use to make uh, treatment decisions. So it's probably it may not be a de- designated record set. So you kind of have to be uh, cognizant of what the data is, where it is, and how it sits, and how you use it to make sure that you don't have a HIPAA obligation, even though you don't have a Cures Act issue because it's not USCDI. Thank you. Appreciate that clarification. Yeah, this is not easy stuff. I mean, this is pretty, gets pretty complicated. It's pretty convoluted. So it's a, uh, <laughs> it, it, you gotta, you gotta like, match up all the moving parts. Jeff, you've done a great job summarizing this very complex area. Rocky Wilcox from TMA's General Counsel has this question. We have state law and physicians are very understanding generally of what the state law requires. So what is the impact of the Cures Act on state law? Practically, how do they put this into their system very quickly to make sure they don't run into any difficulty? Well, if there's a state law that prohibits a disclosure, then you have an exception to the data blocking rules under the uh, under the uh, privacy rule. So if you have a state law that, that does that, then that helps you. If the state law though is uh, is is not prescriptive, it's it's uh, it's uh, uh, permissible, then that doesn't help you. You still have a data blocking issue, even though you're permitted under state law not to disclose data. 
and you still you, it's a it's a it's three layer chess at this point with doing the state, the state law requirements and the data blocking rule requirements and the HIPAA requirements. So uh, it's for the it had previously been the most restrictive is likely to win because of because state law and HIPAA are both primarily about privacy um, and and not disclosing data. Uh, 21st Century Cares Act pushes in the opposite direction. And so that becomes, it makes it even more difficult and a little more dicey to see where, you know, where the, 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 what, what your specific data elements should or shouldn't be and what your specific decision points should or shouldn't be. The upside or the, the, the cold comfort I can give you is that uh, because the data blocking rules are going to be complaint driven, then, you know, you're probably not, it's, you're less likely to run into an issue uh, but you have to be cognizant of the fact that if a patient comes in and is trying to get data and uh, you have a good reason under state law not to give it to them, you need to be real cognizant about whether or not you've got a, it's how ironclad that refusal right is. Thank you, Jeff. I, and I see another re- uh, question here. If a patient requests a copy of their CT scan report done by an outside imaging facility, which has not been reviewed with the patient yet, would withholding this from the patient fall under a safety or preventing harm exception. You know, there, I've seen lots of chatter about this exact type of scenario. And I would say, you know, the answer is if the patient wants it, you have to give it to them. It would be information blocking if you didn't, even though it was done by an outside entity, even though it had not been reviewed yet. Um, so I, I and, unless there is a reason um, to not give it to the patient using a harm exception, you would need to give it to the patient. And Jeff, I'll stop there if you want to add something to that. That's that's right. And the harm exception, basically, you have to meet, there are four different conditions that you have to meet to meet the harm exception. Uh, There has to be reasonable belief that what you're doing, in other words, refusing to provide the information, will substantially reduce a risk. Your the information you fail to provide or the information you block has to be no broader amount, no broader than is necessary. Um, it has to be to address a specific type of risk, specific type of harm, uh, and a uh, the way it's implemented. So you have to be you know make sure that you meet all of those specific requirements, uh, and you have to give the patient a right to request um, a review of the determination. And have somebody else look at the determination, figure out whether or not that's really a legitimate risk of harm versus it's just something you don't want to disclose. So with that, um, thank you, um, Jeff, for for your contributions. I know that more questions will come up. Don't hesitate to reach out. We want to help you. We know that this is um, something new and and a little bit uh, different in your practice, and we want to help you. So, So please reach out anytime. Until next time, stay well. To claim CME for today's program, go to www.texmed.org forward slash C-M-E-T-O-G-O. Register for your podcast and follow the instructions to claim CME.